God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. We're again in the book on God's behalf. How should man be just with God? Job chapter 9, verse 2. And these are Job's words. I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? There is no question so important as this one. None so essential for man to learn if either he wants to reach the end of the Lord or learn of God's way of saving the soul. If man have not the depth of thought to consider and to contemplate how they may be found just before God, it is because they do not really care to be. Sinners also, if God's word is not brought to them, will have little to no idea as to the degree that they have sinned against God. This is so because sin deceives men as to the true condition of themselves. It blinds them to not know how their fleshly and carnal nature offends God. In Romans chapter 7, verse 11, we read, For sin, and this is Paul talking, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Sin, because of its corrupting influence, will deceive man and lead him astray, not only from the right path, but will also in the process blind him to the true condition of himself. There is nothing that man should fear more than the sin that lives within himself. Self-deception ultimately is the greatest deception of all. Yes, the world is meant to deceive and lead men deeper into sin, but at the core of the problem is man's own sinful nature. The greatest enemy of man is himself. And not until this is realized will man look to God as to how he may be delivered from his fleshly conceit. Sin also produces a delusional effect on its victims. When coupled with evil spirits, further deception is created. The results are catastrophic. The only force able to cut through the spiritual blindness caused by sin and the evil spirit sent to deceive men is the word of God. Consequently, only when God's word is believed can the deception that sin causes be removed. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11 we read, Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. And now verse 12, For the word of God is quick, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Since God's word is a spiritual sword, it can cut to the very core of a man, even unto the thoughts and tents of his heart, where unbelief has made its home. Men should thank God for this because without the aid of God and his word to try and test their hearts, sin would deceive man all the way to the grave. Oblivious to a nature that leads him to hell, man would follow it until there was no possible way of escape. God's word is therefore critical to first make known the unbelief that lives in the heart and to also plant seeds of faith in God to replace it, so that without the word of God, it will remain impossible 
for any man to see himself properly as a sinner before God. This was the process that God used to show Job who he really was. By first speaking to Job through Elihu's ministry, and then by the Lord directly speaking to Job himself. Job 38.1 Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. This teaches us that only when men will both hear and believe God's word can the deceptive power of sin be escaped. In Mark chapter 7, verse 20 now, Jesus' words, And Jesus said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. The source of sin is man. That which defiles him is himself, and surely not the sins of other men. It is therefore not simply outside environments that cause men to sin against God, but rather it is the very nature that grants man physical life. Likewise, it is not just what people do that make them dirty before the Lord, but more importantly, what they are. Men, the scriptures state, are sinners, born in sin from birth. There are none righteous born into the human race, and all are together by God's standards and estimations become unprofitable. Romans chapter 3, verse 12. They, in reference to man, are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Barnes on Romans 3, 12. They have all gone out of the way. They have declined from the true path of piety and virtue. They are together. They have at the same time, or they have equally become unprofitable. They are as one. They are joined or united in declension. The expression denotes union or similarity, become unprofitable. This word in Hebrew means to become putrid and defensive, like fruit that is spoiled. In Arabic, it is applied to milk that becomes sour. Applied to moral subjects, it means to become corrupt and useless. They are of no value in regards to works of righteousness, end quote. Because of man's sin nature, God has decreed him void of any value in regards to righteousness. All natural men share together in this position. There are none in their flesh and without God's spirit that the Lord finds profitable among men. Verse 10 now of Romans, chapter 3. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. As far as a holy God is concerned, there are none righteous, no, not even one, that are born of the flesh. Since there are none righteous in the earth, then there are none also which can, on their own, be found righteous in God's sight. Hence man, as long as he is only a fleshly creature, cannot find acceptance with God. Stressing this point further, there is no fleshly man whom God considers a righteous man. All born of the flesh have sinned and come short of his glory. 
Romans chapter 3, verse 23 now. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. The entirety of mankind has been found guilty in God's sight. And there are no exceptions to this rule. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looketh down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Thus a man can be birthed a prince and possess at his birth the wealth of a king. Yet because he is flesh, God must reject him because of the sin nature that makes him unfit for God's kingdom. Teaching us that men on their own cannot and will not, because of their corrupt sinful condition, ever find acceptance with God. And those sinners will rebel against this spiritual reality. God's word asserts and reveals it is truth. That a man who possesses only a carnal nature and is subsequently ruled by it cannot be worthy of spiritual inheritance. Romans chapter 8, verse 6 now. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind, this is the mind of the flesh, is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Barnes on Romans 8, 6. For to be carnally minded, margin, the minding of the flesh. The sense is that to follow the inclinations of the flesh or the corrupt propensities of our nature leads us to condemnation and death. The expression is one of great energy and shows that it not only leads to death or leads to misery, but that it is death itself. There is woe and condemnation in the very act and purpose of being supremely devoted to the corrupt passions. Its only tendency is condemnation and despair, end quote. If we are to believe God's word, then those in the flesh, if they have no other nature than the flesh, cannot be found pleasing to God. The corruptness of their sinful nature prohibits God finding anything pleasing about them. It is for this reason that a man must be born again and born anew by being regenerated through receiving God's Holy Spirit so that entrance into the kingdom of God may be granted him. Without reception of the Spirit of God, Jesus taught that men cannot enter the kingdom of God. And in John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, or truthfully, truthfully, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Before, though, this spiritual baptism of the Holy Spirit is given, there must come first repentance for sin. The foundation also upon which justification before God is built is men confessing themselves as sinners. Though men cannot by themselves change their sinful state, they can, if they are humble, 
confess themselves as sinful. Elihu's words spoken to Job reveal the path by which God can save men by leading them through exposure to God's word to repentance for sin. And in Job chapter 33, verse 27, we read, He looketh upon men, and this is the Lord, and if any say, and this is in reference to man, I have sinned and perverted that which was right, and it profiteth me not, then he, God, will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see the light. Heavenly justification, as seen in Elihu's words to Job, begins with the personal confession of, I have sinned and perverted that which was right. Not that others in the world have sinned against us, but rather how we have sinned against God. To escape the grave then, men must believe themselves by faith as sinners before God. This act of repentance cannot be sidestepped if true salvation is desired. For though it is only the first step, if it is not taken, there can be no other. As the path to God's salvation is perpetually revealed in Scripture as beginning with repentance for sin. Until then also, men are truly willing to confess themselves as sinners. They will not be ready to believe upon God's Son. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Barnes on Job chapter 33, verse 27. And if any say, I have sinned, Hebrew, and says, that is, if the sufferer, under the pressure of his afflictions, is willing to confess his faults, then God is ready to show him mercy. This accords with what Elihu purposed to state of the design of afflictions, that they were intended to bring people to reflection and to be a means of wholesome discipline. There is no doubt that he meant that all this should be understood by Job as applicable to himself. For he manifestly means to be understood as saying that he had not seen in him the evidence of a penitent mind, such as he supposed afflictions were designed to produce, and perverted that which was right, that is, in regard to operations and views of the divine government. He had held error, and this is in reference to Job, or had cherished wrong apprehensions of the divine character. Or it may mean that he had dealt unjustly with people in his contact with them. And it profiteth me not. The word used here means properly to be even or level, then to be equal or of like value. And here may mean that he now saw that it was of no advantage to him to have done wickedly since it brought upon him such a punishment or the benefit which he received from his life of wickedness was no equivalent for the pain which he had been called to suffer in consequence of it. This is the common interpretation. It would then be the reflection of a man on the bed of suffering that the course of life 
which brought him there had been attended with no advantage, but had been the means plunging him into deserved sorrows from which he could be rescued only by the grace of God, end quote. This principle of repentance might seem simple from a practical standpoint, yet there is little the sinner despises more than confession of his own personal guilt. As sin is not only very deceptive, but it is equally stubborn. Sadly, most, because they are resistant to bringing personal condemnation upon themselves, will refuse God's offer to repent for their sin in order to receive God's mercy. The pride also that accompanies sin will reveal itself by maintaining a strong resistance to admitting personal guilt. This was Job's sentiment concerning himself before God's word touched his heart and conviction of sin was able to make its way into his conscience. Job 33 verse 8, Surely thou hast spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the voice of thy words saying, I am clean without transgression. I am innocent, neither is there iniquity in me. Though these are not Job's exact words, they are a summary of his inward belief of himself, that he had done no wrong and was absent of iniquity. Yet in the penitent heart that God looks for, and this is what God was looking for in Job, the ultimate subject matter in the book, therefore, will be seen to be, if Job instead of self-righteously defending himself before God, would confess his own personal sin against God. Thankfully, the events in Job's life and the effects of God's word being spoken to him, coupled with his previous affliction, did just this. Job 42.6 Job speaking, Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Ultimately then, For God to save men, they must be brought to their knees. They must be brought to recognize that they are themselves sinners and therefore cease to see themselves as pure in God's sight. Proverbs 30, 12. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. Gill on Proverbs 30, 12. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes, not in the eyes of God who sees the heart and all the impurities of it, as well as of life and conversation, nor in the eyes of others, though such may appear outwardly righteous before men, but in their own eyes, in their own conceit and imagination, trusting in themselves that they are righteous. But such have not their eyes open or enlightened to see the plague of their own hearts, the spirituality of the law of God, the perfection of righteousness that requires, nor the righteousness and holiness of God himself, nor the imperfection and insufficiency of their own, end quote. The contrast between a repentant sinner and a man who thinks himself righteous in God's sight is seen in Christ's parable of the Pharisee and the publican. For where one man knew himself to be a sinner, the publican, the other, the Pharisee, was completely oblivious to his sin and believed himself as actually righteous before God. Luke 18, verse 9. And he, Christ, 
spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and consequently despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, in contrast to this, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14 now, I tell you, Christ speaking, this man went down to the house justified, that's the publican, rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. The Pharisee prayed with himself because he was primarily talking to himself. And though he made reference to God, his thoughts were wholly upon himself. Jesus spoke this parable to those, many of them religious leaders, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. The ultimate aim of the parable also teaches that if men believe themselves to be righteous in their own eyes, they cannot be saved by God. The Pharisee, because of what he thought he was and had done, was at the center of his religion. His religion therefore was based on his own works and what he believed himself to be in the flesh, in contrast to depending upon God's mercy. It was not God's mercy that the Pharisee relied on, but rather his own self-righteousness. Observe also that men may be confident in themselves, as the Pharisee strongly exhibited, but in this condition they are unworthy of God. It was also not the Pharisee, but the publican, who was aware of his unworthiness, who because of this sign of repentance went down to the house justified. The contrast in what God looks for to save men is clearly seen. When the penitent sinner, as seen in the publican, will confess like Job, I have sinned and perverted that which was right. The self-righteous man will stubbornly maintain as his belief and confession, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. Hence, the self-righteous, as depicted by the Pharisee in Christ's parable, will compare himself to others and how he is nothing like them, even while being blind to the true condition of himself. Foolishly comparing himself to other men whom he believes himself to be more righteous than, he is blind to any sin within. 2 Corinthians 10, 12. For we dare not make ourselves in the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Whenever men set themselves as their own standard for excellence, then we know that they know nothing of the truth, of how truly to be found just before God. Barnes on 2 Corinthians 10, 12. 
The sense of Paul is that they made themselves the standard of excellence, that they were satisfied with their own attainments, and that they overlooked the superior excellence and attainments of others. This is a graphic description of pride and self-complacency. And alas, it is what is often exhibited. How many there are, and it is to be feared even among professing Christians, who have no other standard of excellence than themselves. Their views are the standard of orthodoxy. Their modes of worship are the standard of the proper manner of devotion. Their habits and customs are in their own estimation perfect. And their own characters are the models of excellence. And they see little or no excellence in those who differ from them, end quote. Now let's go to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The soul which is lifted up and full of itself because of pride is a completely different soul than one filled with humble faith. So that while a prideful man will resist heavenly revelation, that reveals he is a sinner. A man of faith will accept it and seek for God's mercy. What is also seen here is the disparity between pride and faith, where one lowers itself in God's presence, even as the other exalts itself. In truth, men will ultimately either pursue faith or pride as a means by which they will live their life. Barnes on Habakkuk 2.4. The source of all sin was and is pride. It is especially the sin of all oppressors, of the Chaldee, of the Antichrists, and shall be of the Antichrist. It is the parent of all heresy and of all corruption and rejection of the gospel. It stands therefore as the type of all opposed to it. Of it, he says, it is in its very innermost core in him lacking in uprightness. It can have no good in it because it denies God and God denies it his grace. And having nothing upright in it, being corrupt in its very innermost being, it cannot stand or abide. God gives it no power to stand. The word stand in contrast with the following, the one speaking of the cause of death, the other of life. The soul, being swollen with pride, shuts out faith, and with it, the presence of God. It is all crooked in its very inner self or being, end quote. Pride and faith are thus separated and shown to be completely distinct, one from the other. As every man also shall in the end choose one of these two behaviors to live his life by. But what he chooses will also determine if God's eternal life can be received. Hence, only those who pursue faith will have as their reward spiritual and eternal life given to them. Thus, every man will be faced with the choice of either pursuing faith, which leads to life, or maintaining pride, which has at its end death. Observe as well that as far as God is concerned, there is no unbelieving man whose soul is lifted up, whom God considers a just man. As God despises the proud and promises 
that His divine favor will only be shed on the humble. The proud of heart, because of being swollen with self, have little to no interest in the pursuit of God. Being content with what they deem themselves to be in the flesh, they see no reason why fellowship with God should be sought. Man, therefore, in his fallen state, is more than content with fellowship only with himself. He sees God as not needed, since he views himself as a God. Those, therefore, whose hearts are lifted up with personal pride, which also they will relish in, like the Pharisee in Christ's parable, will not pursue the path of faith, which is necessary to be saved. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 now. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, this gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17 now. For therein, in this gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In reference to Job's question on how can man be just with God, we have in the book of Romans a more perfect answer. It is through the gospel of Christ. Because if men believe it, they shall discover God's righteousness. Whenever then the gospel is believed, it has the power to deliver men from their fleshly nature so that through receiving a divine nature from God, they can be found righteous in God's sight. Ellicott on Romans chapter 1, verse 17. The gospel attains its end, the salvation of the believer, by revealing the righteousness of God, i.e., the plan or process designed by him for man to become just or righteous in his sight. The essential part on man's side, the beginning and end of that plan, is faith, for which there was authority in the Old Testament, where it is said, the just shall live by faith, end quote. How then men are made righteous before God is by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ therefore will accomplish for the sinner what he has not the power to do for himself. It can both save his soul and satisfy God's demand for righteousness. The reason that the gospel can save men is because Jesus is alive in heaven, ready also to make intercession for sinners who come unto God through him. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 now. Wherefore he, Christ, is able also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he, Christ, ever liveth to make intercession for them. The gospel gains its power to save because the living high priest, Jesus Christ, sits in heaven, ready to make intercession for all those who come unto God through himself. Jesus, therefore, is affected in saving men today because he is alive and sits as a high priest providing atonement for those who confess themselves as sinners before God. There is power in the gospel because Christ's living, intercessory ministry gives it power. As God raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus can do the same for all who believe upon him. Christ's own resurrection from the dead, becoming the type through which Jesus can rescue from death 
those born dead in sins. Elikad on Hebrew 7.25 In his supplication or his prayer unto God, who is able to save him out of death, he was heard. This was the type and more than the type. Christ's submission to God is what allowed God to save him from death. And likewise, the believer's submission to Christ is what will allow Christ to save sinners from their death. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, in reference to Christ, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with strong crying and tears unto him, that was able to save him from death, and was heard, or Christ was heard, in that or because he feared. Christ's prayers were heard, and he was delivered from eternal death and separation from the Father because he feared and submitted to God's will for his life. Every day also, until Christ's return, for the believer is a day of atonement for those who come to God through Christ. Because Jesus is at God's right hand and functions as a priest before God, then when men both believe and confess Him as Lord, Christ's ministry can save them from death. It is not then simply faith that saves the believer, but faith in the one whom God has given the power to save. Because what gives faith the power to save a man is that the one God calls him to believe on is alive and able to make atonement for sin. Faith is effective to save simply because Jesus is now risen. Seeing he, again quoting the verse, seeing he ever liveth, to make intercession for them. Again, the power of the gospel to save lies in the fact that Christ lives. And the life he now lives is devoted to making intercession for sinners who come unto God through him. Faith in the Son of God resulting in pardon for sins against God. In truth, the only living religion on this earth is that religion which has an active resurrected priest in heaven who lives to make intercession for the sins of the whole world. Christianity is a living religion and able to save men from sin because its Lord, Head and Savior, Jesus Christ, is Himself now alive and ready to pardon any who repent in His name for their sins against God. Ellicott on Hebrews 7.25 With the high priest confession of the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement was joined fervent intercession on their behalf. This intercession was also symbolized in the offering of the incense." End quote. The reason that sinners can be saved from their sin is because through Christ a mediator for sin exists. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The word mediator in this verse is, and we're going to quote from Help's Word Studies, Mesites from Misos, in the middle, properly an arbiter, a mediator, guaranteeing the performance of all the terms stipulated in a covenant, agreement, a mediator, intervenes to restore peace between two parties, especially as it fulfills a compact or ratifies a covenant, end quote. There is but one mediator 
between God and man for sin. And without this mediator, only God's wrath awaits sinners. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 And to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Without Jesus as a mediator for sin, men shall be required to die for it themselves. Ultimately then for men to be found just before God, they shall need to confess themselves as sinners before God and then lean upon Christ as their mediator for sin. Because only when Christ's ministry for sin is embraced will God's mercy be found. And then Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, we read, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he, Christ, might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Amen.